Well, good morning, Southwinds. It's so good to see you again after a few weeks away, some study leave, my annual study leave, and some vacation time that I've been on. I'm really glad to be back. If you are new around here, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here at this church, and uh, we're glad to see you all today. We have been, as you probably know, in a series this summer called Tell Me a Story, and we have been learning together from some Old Testament stories that I think have taught us a lot. And I want you to know right up front, I've got a really amazing story for you today. Uh, In this story today, which is in 2 Kings chapter 5, you are going to hear about two people who are suffering. And one of them is a follower of God and the other one isn't. And neither one of them knows why they are suffering. The one who doesn't follow God discovers that he has a terminal disease and the follower is a young girl whose parents have probably been killed and she's a slave to this man with the terminal disease and he is responsible for her parents' death and for her nation's defeat. And you're going to see in this story how God weaves their two stories together, revealing to us a picture of how he often works in our lives. And maybe you have been looking around at what is happening in your life and wondering, what in the world is God doing? What is he up to? Maybe you've even been wondering if God even exists. I think today this story may help you make some sense of what's going on in your life. Now, this story is often called the story of Naaman. And it is really a story about how God reaches out to sinners. And that's all of us. And it's a story that shows us how sinners should respond. It's a story that shows us how things that are in life seem seemingly random and meaningless to us sometimes. They may be the very things that God uses to show us his love and his grace. Now, I'll just let you know, too, that Naaman's story is actually one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Some of you may have heard it, but for many of you, this is going to be the first time. And so I'm going to warn you that it has some kind of weird twists and turns. But I think as you hear this story and hopefully get to understand it more, you may begin to understand something of what God might be doing in your life, even if at first it doesn't seem to make any sense, even if at first it doesn't seem like you see any evidence of him at all. So let's call this story the story of a powerful, proud man and a suffering servant girl. And we're going to begin in verse 1 and kind of work our way through it. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So Aram was also called Syria. They were Israel's enemies, and that means that the Lord had given them victory over his people, Israel. God is in this season where he is punishing Israel for their persistent sin and idolatry, and eventually he's going to send the whole nation into captivity and exile because of it. And so this is a story from that era. It probably takes place somewhere around the time of 850 B.C., Naaman, who we're introduced to, is a man who seems to have it all. We will call him like the ultimate insider. Verse 1 tells us he's the commander of the army. We're going to read later in this story that he's probably like a prime minister, probably second in command to the king. 
So he's this powerful military and political leader. We're told here that he's highly regarded by the king, by everyone else. So he's sort of like what we'd call a celebrity. He is a man of personal courage, a valiant soldier. And then we're also going to see later that he is enormously wealthy. He has all of that, but he has leprosy. Leprosy in that day was the most feared disease in the world. It's a skin disease that attacks nerve cells, and it it starts out sort of like a rash with these small white spots or patches on your skin. Over time, these patches grow. They spread all over your body, and wherever this spreads, the nerve endings die, and because of that, boils start breaking out on your body. They eventually open up gaping wounds of raw flesh. Because you can't feel anything, you injure yourself, and that leads uh, in many people to actual body parts falling off. Facial features become distorted and grotesque. And in that day, there was absolutely no cure. Leprosy had a 100% death rate. Now, they also thought back then that it was highly contagious. We know now that it's not nearly as contagious as they thought, but then they thought that. And so when those spots were discovered on you, you were immediately banished from your family, immediately banished from your community. You would spend the rest of your life in isolation. And so here's this man, powerful, wealthy, connected Naaman, on top of the world. He has it all. And one morning he gets up and he looks at his body and sees one of these spots of death. Verse 2. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This young girl is talking about Elisha specifically. He's one of the mightiest prophets from this time. He served the nation of Israel from about 892 to 832 B.C. Verse 4 says, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Now, what Naaman took with him was an enormous sum of money. Let me translate it for you. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. Now, I think for most of us, the clothing strikes us as sort of odd right here. It's like, okay, here's $5 million and some shirts. Uh, But in those days, clothing was handmade. It was very expensive. This would have been like party clothing, something you would have worn to a gala. This very expensive clothing. And so having 10 sets of this in a culture where most people would never have one set of clothing like this in all of their lives, this would be like having a garage full of Rolls Royces. It was, it was very special. Verse 6 says, The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel thinks the king of Syria, Aram, is just looking for an excuse for war. He's going to ask him to do an impossible thing, and when he can't do it, then he's going to attack. 
Well, verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha is declaring more than that he's a prophet. He's actually declaring the truth and the reality of the one God that he served, the God of Israel, the one true God, the only God. And he knows that this God has a greater purpose in this leprosy. He knows that God wants to change Naaman's life. He knows that God wants to display his glory. Verse 9 says, So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And you need to understand what's going on here. This probably uh, would have been a terrifying scene to the people who saw it. Remember, this is the conquering army, the, the, the army that had subjugated them. And so this would have seemed like a show of military force dominating a conquered people. Maybe it would have been like Vladimir Putin showing up at your front door with armored cars and with tanks and helicopters and missiles and a bunch of soldiers. And all of this impressive you know, cavalcade, it, 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 they stroll up and stop right in front of Elisha's house. And surprisingly, in verse 10, we read, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Elisha doesn't even go out his front door. He doesn't go see this very important man. He sends an intern. And by the way, how would you have liked to have been the kid who had delivered this message? Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Naaman, Dr. Elisha has a busy afternoon and he won't be able to see you today. And meanwhile, you know, Elisha's house is probably like 20 feet away and Naaman's like looking in the window and he sees Elisha sitting there reading a book. His legs are up on the coffee table. <laughs> I read this week that uh, Steve Jobs got really upset when Apple released the very first iPad and he got a phone call from Rahm Emanuel, the president's chief of staff, calling to congratulate him. He was upset because President Obama himself didn't call. And so it's kind of this, this thing like here. He has an expectation. You've got one of the world's most powerful men uh, showing up at the front door of a relatively unknown prophet, and the prophet won't even come to the door. And, and you're meant to read this story and kind of think, well, what is God doing here? Verse 11 says, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and Call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. See, he wants drama. He said, I thought there would be a ceremony. I thought Elisha would like run out of a smoke-filled tunnel and fireworks would go off and the blue angels would fly over and Beyonce would like do a dance and, <laughs> and Justin Timberlake would sing a song and then Elisha would walk out on coals, hot coals, and he would, you know, wave his hands and charm some snakes and then I'd be healed. He's looking for something impressive. And then he goes on in verse 12. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in rage. See, the reality was most of the time the Jordan River is not really that impressive a river. A whole lot of this year, 
It's just kind of a muddy trickle. It's nothing at all like the beautiful, large, impressive rivers that Naaman was used to in Damascus. And so he just storms off in a rage. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? In other words, Naaman, if like he had told you to go get the berries off the top of a plant on Mount, top of Mount Everest or maybe like, you know, clip the toenails of a dragon in his cave, I mean, wouldn't you have done that? All you have to do is wash. So what have you got to lose, Naaman? Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now, I want to tell you how I kind of imagine this scene, because when somebody's really mad, they don't usually turn on a dime, right? They, it usually takes them a while to come down out of that, that, that anger, right? And so I think when he agrees to do this, he's still seething with rage. And so he dips himself down into the river the first time, comes up, looks at himself, and nothing's changed. So he does it a second time. He does it a third time. By the time he does it the fourth time, he's getting really mad. At the sixth time, he's about to lose it. And his servants see that, and they say, come on, Naaman, just one more time. And so he goes down the seventh time. And when he comes up, he looks, and he sees that his skin is as smooth and clear like a little child, clean. He's totally healed. Now look at verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now stop right there, okay? Just look up here. Naaman is going to actually meet this prophet Elisha for the very first time. I want to ask you, think about it. What would you say to this man who has healed you from a terminal disease, who has saved your life? When you met him the first time, what would you first say? Wouldn't you probably say something like, thank you, thank you so much for healing me, for saving my life? I want you to notice what Naaman says in verse 15. He says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Doesn't say anything about his leprosy or about his healing. So think about this. Naaman, he wasn't looking for God. He just wanted to be cured of a disease. But God used this search for a cure to lead him to something greater than the cure, a relationship with God himself. And the knowledge of God that he discovered was so valuable that when he finally met the prophet Elijah, he forgot even to mention the healing. All he could talk about was God. That's the story. So what does it teach us? Two things I want you to see this morning. And here's the first. You can write this down. This story shows us that God uses your pain to bring you to himself. God uses your pain to bring you to himself. Here's a question I want you to think about. What if God has a greater purpose in your pain than you've ever imagined? See, up until the moment Naaman discovered that spot of leprosy, he thought he was on top of the world, that he had it all. I've already mentioned it. Man of great military and political power, enormous wealth, personal popularity. I mean, he had everything we think makes life good. And then he wakes up one morning and he knows it's all gone because of one little spot. 
What if God was saying something to you in your pain that you needed to hear more than anything else in all the world? And what if that problem had been put there by God to wake you up? What if God has something better for you than even the cure for your pain, whatever it may be? And what if that cure was better than wealth, better than health, better than that relationship you've been longing for? And what if what God had for you was so valuable that after you found it, like Naaman, you would forget to even mention the healing that you had just be, had received. It's kind of like this. You know, you decide you want to have a long weekend one week, and so you email your boss and ask for Friday off. And your boss emails you back and says, no problem, you can have Friday off. And by the way, uh, we wanted to let you know, we've decided that we're raising your salary $500,000 per year. Now, here's the question. You and your wife want to have a long weekend off. Um, when you call her, are you going to tell her you got Friday off? <laughs> I don't think so, right? <laughs> you know, it's nice to have a day off, but that has been eclipsed by something overwhelmingly better. I mean, just ask you, where has a spot been revealed in your life that tells you you're not as together as you thought you were? Maybe there's a problem in your marriage. And it's just falling apart, and you don't think you can do anything about it. You see no way around it. Maybe it's a problem with your kids, and you've tried everything, and it just seems helpless. You feel like you don't know what to do. Maybe it's a habit you have in your life that you can't break. Alcohol, pills, pornography, anger, something. Maybe it's a fear that's paralyzing you. Maybe it's a personal failure in your past. Maybe it's a health scare that makes you realize your mortality. Maybe it is a mental health problem, an emotional struggle, and you can't get around it. Maybe it is a guilt that you can't get rid of. Maybe there's that one relationship, and you've been longing for it, and you just can't seem to find it. All of these spots can point us to a bigger problem. And that problem is the ultimate spot on our souls. You know, it's interesting, throughout the Bible, leprosy symbolizes sin. See, like leprosy, sin deadens. It grows in us like leprosy. It corrupts us like leprosy more and more and more over time. You lose feeling in parts of your life. Parts of you die you lose your innocence, your joy, your compassion for others. Your soul has a disease, and that disease is terminal. And all of us have that disease. And the Bible tells us this so clearly, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. These smaller spots can wake us up to what is the ultimate spot that is on our souls. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand so you can relax right now, but I wonder how many of you are here today because one day you woke up with a spot. One day you came face to face with a problem you couldn't fix, a heartbreak you couldn't get past, and that caused you to start seeking God. I wonder how many of you are here today just like that. 
And then I wonder if someone else is here right now and you are going through something and maybe some spots have been revealed to you and you're sensing that maybe this is God's way of challenging you and asking you to look for something deeper in life, to look for something more meaningful in life, to ask you, are you ready for the ultimate question? See, the point of this story is not that every leper who heads out to the Jordan River will find healing for his skin disease. This point of this story is to show us that God uses these things to bring us to himself. And see, again, Naaman's story is ultimately about how God pursues sinners. Before I move on, I'm going to show you kind of how this aspect of the story concludes. Verse 15 again says, Then Naaman... And all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Now just think about this. A fabulously rich guy comes and wants to give a gift to a pastor, but the pastor refuses. I Don't know any other situation in human history where that has taken place. And in fact, if God were to prompt any of you uh, my name's not Elisha, so um, why why does he say no? Let me explain. See, Elisha knows that if he receives this gift, it might confuse the people who are watching. You see, Naaman had started this process thinking that he could purchase this miracle with his riches. And if Elisha now now receives this gift, then those watching might assume that Naaman had been able to purchase it after all. And it would obscure the message that God wanted to communicate. See, because this is about the gospel, and the one thing that must be understood about the gospel, and this was true in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, is that it has always been, always been a free gift of grace. It cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It has to be simply received as a gift of grace. Verse 17 says, If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, Be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Now, I told you there's some weird stuff in here. This is quite a jump, isn't it? I mean, if you won't take my million-dollar offering, can I at least have some dirt? And we're confused by that. Scholars aren't totally sure what's going on here. Um, It's probably a mixture of several things, but it appears to be that his plan is to spread out underneath him when he gets back home this dirt so that whenever he sacrifices to God, it's as if he's doing it from Israel, which is the land in which he assumes God resides. You see, they, they had a, an idea back then that gods were territorial, God for here and a God for there, you know, just different gods in different places. So maybe he's not broken out of this mold yet. Maybe he still doesn't fully understand who God is. Some other scholars think that it it might be more about being a witness to his culture, that he's showing these people in this pagan culture there in Aram that he is not going to worship their gods anymore, but he is a servant of the one true God, the God of Israel. So we don't really know for sure, but it actually gets even better 
verse 18 says, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And we read that, and it looks like he's asking Elisha for permission to be a coward and bow down before a false god. Now, we read that, and we would probably expect, like, Elijah's going to go all Old Testament prophet on him, read him a riot act, and say, listen, if you're not ready to pick up your cross and die, you're not ready to follow Jesus. But that's not what Elisha does. In verse 19, it says, go in peace, Elisha said. And again, I think there's some complexity here, but at the very least, I think what we're seeing is that Naaman's obedience is imperfect, but it's a start. And he is coming to faith. He is asking for forgiveness for having to feel like he has to participate in this as part of his job, which was true. And God takes him at where he is. God receives him as he is. And I think this is a good thing to remember. A lot of Christians forget this. A lot of Christians talk like, you know, whenever someone comes to Jesus, it's like, bam, all of a sudden, all your bad habits, you know, are gone. And you automatically become this godly, Christ-like, spirit-filled, fully mature believer. You know, you're always happy. You don't get mad at anymore, anymore at anyone. And when you're on the freeway, you only wave at people with all of your fingers. <laughs> And this is not true, and I know that because I've driven past some of you on 580. <laughs> now, here's the truth, and then we see it here. When you meet Jesus, you're born again, right? And to be born again means you're a baby. You start out the Christian life as a spiritual baby, and everyone starts there, and babies crawl, and babies drool, and babies break things. And that's okay. Because if you're heading in the right direction, God receives that. If you're serious about repentance, God is serious about helping you to grow. And as you are heading in his direction, even with, with uh, falls and mistakes and sin, God will be patiently there with you, taking you along that journey. See, this story, this story shows us that all you need to come to Jesus is humility and faith. See, humility, did you notice? It's the one thing that God uses. To, he keeps coming after Naaman with Naaman. See, over and over again, notice this. Naaman keeps trying to go to the top, and God keeps sending him down to the bottom. Naaman goes to two kings because that's how he thinks the world works. Naaman tries to leverage his wealth because that's how he thinks the world works. But did you notice God only speaks to him through servants? He speaks to him through the slave girl that's in his house. He speaks to him through Elisha's intern. And then finally, God speaks to him again through his own servants. He wants to go to the top. God keeps sending him down to the bottom. He wants to dip in the blue waters of Lake Tahoe. God says, you know, go take a dip in that irrigation ditch over there. See, the path to God is the path of humility. And we need to be reminded, you can't get to God any other way. The one thing you absolutely need is need. And need is all that you need. See, all you have to do is wash. Naaman 
like so many of us, wants to find salvation through power and strength. He wants to earn it. He wants to take credit for himself. He wants, he, he, he wants to feel like he's a good person, just like we do. But I want to tell you today, please hear me. If you've never understood this before, you'll never find God that way. You can't find God that way. God has always and only saved people by his grace through faith in what he has done for us It's never been about what we could do. It has always been about what Jesus has already done. And so here it has nothing to do with Naaman's power or strength or wealth. It is the sheer gift of God. And this just highlights that Naaman's problem ultimately is his pride. And so that's why God goes after it. God wants to tear down his pride. You know, so many of us don't understand that's our problem too. The central problem of the human race Always pride, always pride. We want to do it ourselves. We want to say we earned it somehow. And even people sitting in church who say they believe in grace sometimes are carving out a place for their goodness and their works to be recognized. This, by the way, is why the cross is so absolutely central to Christianity because the cross absolutely destroys our pride. See, the cross tells you that God's verdict on your life was death, and that is always the verdict. And the thing that keeps most people from the gospel is right here. They don't have the humility to admit, I am a sinner and I deserve to die. I deserve God's holy wrath and judgment on my sin. And that's why God comes after us there until we admit that we are powerless about our predicament that we have no way around it, that our only hope is grace. Until we admit that, we're never going to get past where we are. It's kind of an interesting thing because we're a church that believes in grace. And so if you've been here very long, you know we believe in grace, you believe in grace, and we like to talk about grace. But the truth is sometimes we don't want to be in the position where that's all we can do is receive grace because we don't like to be needy. We don't want to be dependent. I heard a great story about this recently. A few years ago, this, this guy was leading a hiking trip with a group of college students in Colorado. So they're up in the mountains. And before everybody got to this place where they're going to have this trip together, everyone had been assigned a book to read. And so it's the first day of their trip. They're all there with their backpacks on. They're getting ready to start their first hike. It's two miles up this steep mountain path. And the guide asks them, how many of you read the book? that I assigned. And they're college students, so like half of them had. And he said to them, well, I want everybody to take off your backpacks right now because some of you are going to take someone else's pack up the hill. Now, everyone assumed what was going to happen was this. The people who hadn't read the book were going to carry the backpacks for the people who had. Isn't that what you think was becoming? But he did the opposite. He said to them, if you read the book, you pick up your pack and you also pick up the pack of someone who didn't read the book. And you're going to carry both packs up the mountain these two miles. Well, what happened next, he said, stunned him. Because wouldn't you think that the kids carrying two packs would be mad? But he said they were smiling. He said they were happy. Carrying the extra weight made them feel stronger and it made them feel better. They felt pride. 
It was actually the ones who didn't have the packs that were angry, who hated it, who felt humiliated because we don't like to feel needy and we don't like to feel dependent. Why? Well, because grace and humility are not natural. See, we say we love grace, but do we actually have the humility to come to Jesus and say, I got what you got, what I deserve, Jesus. You took my punishment. Let me just ask you right now, do you have the humility to come to Jesus, to admit you cannot make it on your own, to say his way is the only way, that he is your only hope, It's kind of another interesting component in this area on this. Uh, I want you to think about how much humility it actually took for Naaman to cross the border into Israel. I mean, he had defeated them. They were inferior culture to his culture. They were not as strong as he was. He had to admit to do this, that healing and salvation could not be found among his peers, his culture, the mighty Syrians. I think that may be happening even to some of us here today. Maybe you're here today and you're looking around at the people in this room who are here and you think to yourself as you look at them, I'm smarter than they are. Can't believe these Christians believe this stuff. It's like superstition. I can't believe how closed-minded and intolerant they are. You see, maybe God is putting you in a place where you look around and you think the people you're with are somehow inferior to you, not as intelligent as you are, and maybe God is opening your eyes up to the reality that the only hope you have, the only way you're ever going to find salvation is if you receive what those supposedly dumber people all around you believe. It takes humility. It also takes faith. You have to believe that what God says is true and accept it, God says to Naaman, there is a river that can wash your sins away, that can heal you. But you have to believe that, and you have to respond by plunging yourself into that river and receiving what that river does as your own. Now, some of you are hearing all this and you're saying, but it can't be that easy. I've had many people say that to me over the years when I shared the gospel with him. It can't be that easy. Well, that's what Naaman said. And if you are saying that, please listen to me. It is only because you are still looking for a way that you can save yourself. You don't want it to be that easy. You want it to be harder so you can claim some credit and merit for yourself. But salvation It is not about what you do to save yourself. It is only about what he has done. And all you do is receive that as you believe that. That's why we sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. See, that fountain doesn't flow with good works. It is a fountain, a river that flows with God's grace, and you believe in that grace, and you plunge into that grace, and you receive that grace. That is how you are saved. All you have to do is wash. Here's the second thing this story teaches us. Go ahead and write this down in your notes. God uses our pain to bring others to him. 
I want you to think for a moment about a character you may have sort of passed by. I want you to think about this anonymous young girl. Because in a very real way, she is the actual hero of this story. Just think about what's going on here, about what's happened to her. I mean, how would you respond to the person who had murdered maybe many of your friends and maybe even your family, the person who had taken you captive and had made you a slave in his house? How would you have responded when that person got leprosy? Would you have secretly gloated? Would you have looked forward to enjoying his pain, to watching every day as his body deteriorated and he would have died? I mean, that's what I would have done, and I'm a pastor. Who knows what you guys would do? (laughs) But I want you to listen. Just listen to this sweet young girl. In verse 3, she said, To her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. It's like she cares about him. It's like she's forgiven him. It's like somehow this young girl, 12, 13 years old, she has the faith to say, I'll just let God be the judge, the God who makes all things right. I'll trust him with what has happened. I will have compassion on Naaman. Don't you want to give this girl a hug when you get to heaven one day? This sweet girl, whose name we'll never know until then, gives us actually one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of Jesus. What do you think about this? She was suffering through no fault of her own. In fact, her suffering was caused by Naaman's sin, but she forgave him. And what's more, her suffering became the means of his salvation. I mean, think about it. If she had not been in this situation, Naaman would have never heard about Elisha. Naaman would have died of his leprosy. Her suffering, which he caused, became the means of his healing, his salvation. And it is in the same way that our salvation comes through a suffering servant. Like this little girl, Jesus suffered not for his sins, but for ours. And like this little girl, instead of hating us for causing his suffering, he forgave us and he kept loving us. And his suffering became the means by which our sins can be washed away. We killed him. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. You see, here's what that means for you, Christ's follower. Like this little girl and like Jesus, God uses our suffering to bring other people to him. You know, we read the Old Testament and we see God send his people into exile and captivity because of their idolatry and their sin. But here we are seeing that God has other purposes alongside of that. He uses the suffering of innocent people who are caught up in that, like this young girl, to point the Naamans of this world to salvation. You may never have thought of this before, but I want you to hear it now and write it down. Suffering is the God-ordained means by which God brings salvation to others. The suffering of the church is the God-ordained means that God uses to bring salvation to others. We see it all through the pages of Scripture. 
We also see it all through the years of church history. If you've ever read church history, you will see this time and time and time again. And if you have been following Jesus faithfully and if you have been paying attention, you have probably seen it in your life too, right? How God has used your pain to reach and touch other people who are watching you. You see, for the world to live, in many ways, the church must die. Have you ever thought about that? If you hear that and you don't like it and you don't want to accept it, may I gently point you to the one who died so that you might live. The one who we follow, the one whose life we pattern our lives after. John Piper in one of his writings says that at any moment, God is doing around 10,000 things in your life and you are probably only aware of about three of them. God is using your pain, your suffering, maybe the fact that you think you're not being rewarded properly for your discipleship, your obedience to God. He's using all of those things to point other people to him. And so here's the question, friends. Are you willing to be wounded so that others can come to know Jesus? Maybe you need to forgive someone who has wounded you. Maybe God is calling you to sacrifice financially, to give in a way that changes your lifestyle. You're never going to have certain things if you do what God says, but that generosity becomes the means of salvation to other people. Maybe you don't understand why you have a mental health issue or an emotional struggle in your life and you can't get past it. Maybe God is using that to heal someone else to touch them with his love. Maybe, maybe you're having to endure the scorn of others who will talk badly about you because you're following Jesus and you're living according to biblical convictions. You're choosing to follow him in your life. Are you willing, this is the question, to become a suffering servant for others? You see, there are two kinds of people here today. First, There are those who have seen their spot and humbled themselves and admitted they couldn't fix what's wrong in their lives and they have then received healing and forgiveness. Second, there are those who haven't come to that place yet. And so I have two questions I'm gonna leave you with today and here they are. If you're a Christ follower, are you willing for your suffering to become a means of someone else's salvation? Are you willing to say to God, God, use me even if it hurts? And then if you're not a Christ follower, let me ask you, do you have the humility to come to Jesus and be healed? See, Naaman's story tells us all you have to do is wash. 200 years ago in Hungary, a baby was born. His name was Ignaz Philip Semmelweis, and he was born into a world of dying women. At that time, the very best hospitals, the very best, lost one of six young mothers to the scourge of what they called childbed fever. See, at that time, though they didn't realize it, doctors' daily routines went like this. 
The doctor's daily routines would begin in the dissecting room where the doctor would perform autopsies. And when the doctor got done with that, he would make his way over to the hospital and he would examine expectant mothers without ever pausing to wash his hands. And Dr. Semmelweis grew up and he became a doctor and he was the first man in history to associate such examinations with the infection and the death that followed. And so he developed his practice of washing his hands with a chlorine solution and after 11 years and the delivery of 8,537 babies, he had only lost 184 mothers, about one in 50. He dedicated his life to lecturing and debating with his colleagues who didn't believe him. And one time he argued this. He said, pure puerile fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved all that I have said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I am not asking anything world-shaking. I am asking you only to wash For God's sake, wash your hands. But hardly anyone believed him. Doctors and midwives had been delivering babies for thousands of years without washing. And no outspoken Hungarian doctor was going to change their minds. Tragically, Semmelweis died insane at the age of 47. His wash basins discarded, his colleagues still laughing in his face, the death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. God's way of salvation is very simple. All you have to do is wash. And you have heard it proclaimed to you clearly today Jesus died for your sins so you don't have to. His death has paid the penalty for your sins. All you need to do is repent of your sins and believe in what he has done for you. All you need to do is receive the gift of grace, friends. All you need to do is wash, is wash. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, We thank you for your word, which teaches us, which exposes our hearts to ourselves. We thank you for your grace that we need, your amazing grace, grace that is absolutely free. Lord, would you just open our hearts and our minds now to bow before your grace? Would you grant us humility to receive it? Grant us repentance to turn from our pride. And Lord, may anyone who doesn't know you through your son, Jesus, Come to you in faith today and receive healing and salvation. May they be washed in the blood of Jesus by his death. And for those of us who know you, Father, may we be humbled again by your grace. And may we be humble enough to be willing to suffer like Jesus our Lord suffered so that others may come to you. Above all today, Lord, may your name be glorified This is our prayer in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people said,